Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Glad to have you aboard. Uh, we got lots to talk about today. Uh, it's now 2020. We'll have a review of the Grateful Dead shows in both Los Angeles and San Francisco. I was lucky enough to attend the two shows in San Francisco. Um, we also have Larry Mishkin on the line. Hello, Larry. Jim, how you doing? Happy New Year to you. Very good. As many of you know, Larry is an attorney with Hoban Law, and he's in <clears throat> he's in Chicago. So we're going to talk about the first week of cannabis legal cannabis adult use sales in Illinois. So that'll be very interesting. But I think we want to start out with some current news. We want to mourn the passing of Neil Peart of Rush, big big rock star. Um, I believe it was brain cancer. He died uh, just before he turned 70. So that's a, a real hit, a real blow to the rock and roll world. You know, Jim, it is. And it's uh, kind of interesting because I, when I was uh, driving to my office this morning, uh, one of the radio stations was, was having a, um, a retrospective of, of rock stars that have died recently. And they were playing a lot of Rush music, and I and I didn't quite put two and two together until you know we just were about to hop on the show here, and you, and you mentioned it to me, and I and I went and I checked it out, and the truth is, you know, of course, passing of anybody is sad, and the passing of a any musician is sad, but Rush is one of those bands that I think you know probably unfairly to them, kind of got lost in the shuffle of the late 70s, early 80s, big hair, loud bands that they were just kind of you know seen as one of those. But when, in fact, you know, they've they proved over the test of time, and, and I think you were mentioning that you saw them recently, that, you know, these guys are survivors and they're great musicians. They wrote all of their own songs. They have, you know, many, many albums out. And uh, although I've never seen them in concert, uh, what I hear is that they put on one hell of a show. Do you agree with that? I was lucky enough to see them a few summers ago at Red Rocks. And, uh, yeah, Getty Lee has the, the voice of Rush, great singer, great guitar player, and... Uh, a Neil Peart story, you know, he was successful enough in his music career that he could afford to travel in an RV that pulled along a enclosed trailer behind it with his motorcycles in it. And if the weather was nice, he'd get out and jump on his motorcycle and travel to the next show on his motorcycle. I think there was also a story about he lost a daughter. Maybe you have that story, Larry. Yeah, he lost his daughter and his wife a few years ago, and I you know, vaguely remember hearing about it, and I just, you know, quickly checked online to confirm that. And they were, they were, they were talking about how uh, uh, within a 10-month period, uh, both his wife and his daughter passed away, and how he finally was, you know, able to try and get back into the game. And uh, uh, you know, it, it took some time out of him, uh, but I guess that goes all the way back to uh, really '97 and '98. But it's, it, it's, it's once again, it's kind of like a fascinating story, and you know, we tend to put a lot of our focus on. Grateful Dead and Fish and bands like that. And I think it's important to state that it's not being done with the purpose of excluding other rock and roll bands. Lord knows there's many, many, many of them out there uh, that wouldn't necessarily come to mind in the definition of a, a Grateful Dead-like jam band. But, you know, you, you can't ignore musicians like Rush and the success that they had over the years and that when they lose a founding member of the band, uh, you know, like with any, like we saw with Dead, and, you know, we see with a lot of other bands, what does that mean for their long-term success? Can they replace him? Can they find somebody? You know, and one of the things that I didn't know about him, Jim, that I'm now learning more about as I look at this, is that he was also one of the lyricists for the band. So, you know, he's uh, he's responsible for, for many of those songs that they put out there that were, 
you know, a real staple uh, during my high school and early college years. You know, FM radio was what we had to listen to, and Rush got a ton of airplay back in those days. Yeah, he was a great, great drummer. Like I said, I was lucky enough to see him a few years ago. So, um, well, we'll come back around to music because we need to talk about some of the, the New Year's shows that Dead & Company did as well as uh, Fish. But um, let's talk uh, a little cannabis. And Larry, fill us in on how things are going in Illinois. We've had a week or so now of adult use legal cannabis. The little bit I've read is that the first weekend was 11 million in sales statewide and there's a shortage of product, which you and I have discussed several times on past shows that we were anticipating a lack of supply. But uh, tell us what's going on. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that, Jim, because my smart ass answer that I had in mind to give throw right back at you was, I'm sure you can tell me because we've been talking about this for months, you know, as to how this would play out. You've certainly seen it enough times, you know, and I've read about it enough times. And and sure enough, um, uh, you know, on New Year's Day, the lines were around the block. One of my sons who's of age and can do that kind of thing went down to the local uh, adult use dispensary in Evanston and was thrilled to see nobody waiting to get inside the door until he walked up and was met by a, met by a very large fellow who told him that it was a four to five hour wait and he could give his name and go wait somewhere in the area and they would let him know. And when they buzzed him, he had five minutes to show up. Jeez. So after a little while, he decided that he would go back another day and, and took his leave from that. But they had a number of, um, really at all the dispensaries, lines around the block, over the first five days generated $10.8 million in sales. Um, and now they're all out. Wow. <clears throat> so, you know, they, they sold what they had and they sold it fast. How do you see the supply situation correcting itself? Well, you know, unfortunately, it, it, you know, we're going through a lot of aches and pains. The law specifically calls for there to be a constant supply of medical, but there isn't. And I was at my uh, medical dispensary recently and was disappointed to see that they had no flour at all and they only had one type of concentrate and uh, almost no edibles and, and, and really were short on just about everything. And, you know, the, nobody's going to say exactly why or how, but of course, a lot of it's all getting funneled over to the adult use side uh, to try and develop those markets and build their brands in, in, in that side of the industry. So it's a little bit frustrating. And of course, it's also frustrating because the whole argument as to why the, uh, the program could go forward at this point in time with just the medical cultivators was their impassioned pleas that because the medical program had been doing so poorly, uh, they had never been growing on their full canopy space. And now by you know expanding out to their full 100,000 square feet or whatever they had, but then of course that would be more than enough to make up for anything else and they would be able to get enough product on the shelf. And so now they're doing it and they've run out. Now the other thing that the state did, because we're, we're now in the middle, or not the middle, but just the beginning of the licensing application period for cultivation, infusion, and transportation. So you know, we've kind of rolled right into this one pretty quick, right out of the other one. But what we didn't realize, because the state hadn't really publicized this before, was like they did with the medical uh, dispensaries where each one was entitled to get a matching adult use dispensary. The medical cultivators, all 20, 20 of them, facilities were each entitled to get an adult use one for the same size. Now, the, the application process for the uh, cultivation here in Illinois is going to be for what they call a craft grow, meaning you're only getting a maximum of 5,000 square feet of canopy space. So that was already going to be tough to you know, make some money on when competing with 20 large-scale grows. But now, in essence, by the time these licenses are awarded, they'll be competing with 40 large-scale grows. So it's going to be... Uh, 
very, very challenging to see how this all works out, but that part will go where it goes. In the meantime, uh, I think that the people of Illinois have made it very clear that they're strongly in favor of adult-use cannabis, and uh, it is going to be a challenge now to to get enough product in there, not only to match up with what the uh, adult-use market is looking for, but to make sure uh, the medical patients and the medical dispensaries have sufficient amounts for their for their medical patients. Yes, and although <clears throat> 5,000 square feet in uh, states like Colorado, uh, that's not necessarily economically viable because here in Colorado, they also compete with 100,000 square feet cultivators. But initially, there'll be demand for all the products. So even those 5,000 square foot cultivations will help meet the supply-demand equation. Now, whenever you have a new industry, it takes a while to sort that out. We're seeing imbalances here, not just in Colorado, but in other states, uh, an imbalance in the hemp side. Uh, smokable hemp is very much in demand right now. CBD products are very much in demand. I even heard a CBD advertisement on Rush Limbaugh the other day. CBD is everywhere. And the issue there, for instance, we have a client here, a Bridge West client, who has 200,000 pounds of hemp that tested out very well. But... The labs are all backed up. The extraction labs that make the oils and extractions that go into the CBD products, um, they're all backed up. So there's more product out there, uh, biomass hemp, that's not getting extracted because we don't have enough extraction labs in the country. Yeah, that's an industry that's going to have to come along. And, you know, hopefully, because we're we're running into the same thing here in Illinois. What I'm finding right now is I have as many people coming into my office to talk about how to get set up in the hemp industry as I do in the marijuana industry. Yeah, the same is true for us. Well, you know, look, there's no competition to get a license, and you can pretty much grow anywhere as long as you can have it classified as quote-unquote farmland under the Illinois tax code, and I never really had bothered to look at it before, but apparently it's very flexible in what it allows to be considered as farmland. You can be up and running. And yes, the biggest problem, of course, is what do you do with all that biomass after you harvest it, and uh, you know, I know that there's a lot of companies out there that are trying to grow and develop themselves to the point where they can step in and they can take that biomass and they can process it and sell it off uh, for CBD or just as likely for industrial uses, right? Who, which was the uh, was it Ford? I just read is now going to start making door panels out of hemp. One of them, I may have been Ford. And you know, to me, that's just the, that's you know, that's the very beginning, right? Because as soon as one car company does it and the other car company see it's less expensive and it's safer and it's Everybody's going to make the change. And then we're going to find ourselves in a position where we don't have enough hemp. So, you know, that'll be very interesting, too. Very interesting. You know, hemp's only two or three years old now, so as far as an industry goes. So a lot of sorting out to be done there. There's a lot of expenses involved with having 200,000 pounds of hemp in your barn. Uh, You constantly have to be uh, cycling it, rotating it. Uh, checking the humidity, putting it through dehumidification processes so it doesn't get moldy. So there's a, <clears throat> a lot of expense involved when you have a, a barn full of hemp, a couple hundred thousand pounds that you're trying to move. A lot of challenges. Um, but back onto the cannabis side of things, um, Missouri, I think I mentioned on a prior broadcast that uh, on Christmas Eve 2019, the cultivation license were awarded in Min- in Missouri, and the challenge there is, um, under the Missouri rules, you have to be up and operational within 12 months of getting your license. So every day counts. We're working very hard in Missouri to build buildings, to build cultivations, 
um, trying to get it up and running in, you know, three or four months with um, prefabricated uh, metal buildings that you can buy the kit and, and get 50,000 square feet of cultivation up and running very quickly. So a lot going on in the cannabis world. We'll keep an eye on Illinois. And, um, but yeah, a lot, I've been getting a lot of phone calls on hemp as well. What else is going on up there in uh, Chicago land, Larry? Well, you know, this has been good and this has kept us busy. Uh, and we're very excited about going forward with it, which is all very nice. On the music scene, we're about to head into a busy month of January. Tedeschi Trucks is coming in the middle of January to do their now fifth annual four-night residency at the Chicago Theater. And they actually break it up. They do a Friday and Saturday night. Then they take a week off or they go other places to plan. Then they come back and do the following Friday and Saturday night. And usually one of the nights, they'll bring in another band to play with them, either to open with them or to actually come out and play with them for a little while. So it's something that in the uh, Chicago we look forward to in the middle of winter. The Chicago Theater is a beautiful place. It's easy to get to. And those are really good shows. But actually, the, the week before Tedeschi Trucks in January, I'll be running to see North Mississippi All-Stars, who are coming to play in a very, very small venue just uh, south of the Loop uh, in an old German neighborhood with a uh, something that looks like a big beer hall, and they've turned it into a, a lovely uh, show center in there and everything. And uh, they get great performances and great bands. And uh, I'm a big fan of Luther Dickinson and North Mississippi All-Stars, so I'm looking forward to that one, too. Yes, I've seen them a few times at Red Rocks, great band. I was lucky enough to see the two uh, shows in Los Angeles of Dead and Company and on the 27th and 28th. Oh, right. Yeah, let's let's talk about those for a minute. Talked about the 27th being such a great show, wonderful sound at the Forum. And then the second night, I was hoping to get a couple of uh, my favorites, uh, Eyes of the World and Uncle John's Band, but didn't get any of my favorites. Instead, we got a long, very spacey um, Lost Sailor, saying a circumstance to end the first set. And again, not one of my real favorites. What my takeaway from two nights of Dead Company, they almost should rename it Bob Weir and Company because he sings probably 80, 90 percent of the songs. So um, I was a little disappointed with the second night in L.A. And then I saw the song list and all that they had saved all the favorites for New Year's Eve. Uh, they did a big third set. <clears throat> they had the eyes of the world. They had the Uncle John's band. So the, the last night of the four night run in San Francisco had all the real Grateful Dead um, standards. The Sugar Magnolia at midnight, all the things that everybody loves. And uh, it's uh, it looked like a lot of fun, and I was sorry that I wasn't there. Uh, and, and, and meanwhile, on the opposite coast, uh, Fish was throwing down four wonderful nights at the uh, at Madison Square Garden, their, you know, their new unofficial official home. Uh, and my son was out there, so I was getting regular reports, and they, they really played... Uh, some good shows leading up to New Year's Eve, but of course on New Year's Eve they outdid themselves uh, with a with a wild performance. You can, see, you can go on YouTube and see it. How they they were each on elevated platforms in different colors, with color coordinated dancers directly below them, and it, you know it just looked like crazy fun. And then apparently Trey's platform malfunctioned and didn't come down to the ground, so he got stuck up there for a little while. And I I, I, I don't know the whole story, but it, you know. It sounded like exactly the kind of craziness that Fish fans thrive on and, you know, that, that makes their concerts, you know, a little more out of the ordinary. You, you rarely see Mick Jagger get stuck in one of those big uh, cranes that's dragging him out around the audience or anything. But, you know, sure enough, there's Trey stuck up there on his platform uh, uh, not being able to do anything. Got a real kick out of that. Yes. <clears throat> I uh, 
didn't see it, but I heard that uh, they had to bring one of the other platforms up to rescue him, and he had to climb out of his, you know, 50 feet above the stage and climb into one that worked. And uh, Trace stayed calm through the whole thing, but uh, kind of scary acrobatics. Yeah, I mean, it really is if you think about it. But yes, he did, and you know, for the fans, it turned out to be a lot of fun instead of uh, something uh, something else that it might have been. And what's lighting up uh, what's lighting up the internet and social media is, I guess, they did about a thirty-minute tweezer. I was just going to say, not to be lost in all this talk about their their technical glitz and everything is why the people still go to see them. And they did; they threw down, I think, it was a, a thirty-eight minute tweezer. And what I love about Fish is, you know, much in the same way that Deadheads was, oh, my God, you know, you should have seen the set list tonight. They played this into that into this. The Fish fans do look at that. They'll say, oh, they've, you know, a 38-minute tweezer. Uh, they just did some shows recently where they uh, had another two, and I forget which one it was, where they, they, they jammed the hell out of it for 30 or 40 minutes, and uh, and everybody was, you know, oh, did you see the, uh, you know, the, the long, you know, tweezer last night? And I love that about them. That's what makes them fun in concert, right? Is that they take a tune that they played 50 times, 100 times, 1,000 times, and just by extending it out by 5, 10 minutes, it's like, you know, a brand new song all over again, and the whole community goes wild. And it's wonderful self-promotion in that respect, but it's just a lot of fun, I think. Well, what we're talking about Fish. Um, I have heard some more of the um, Philadelphia shows where they played at the uh, Philharmonic, the Metropolitan Philharmonic. And check out the uh, Waste. One of the finest Wastes I've ever heard was at, uh, in de- early December at uh, the Philadelphia shows. Well, that's always a good tune, and that's good for him to play. Very good. Well, I think that um, what I have for today, Larry, you got anything else? Well, gosh, Jim, you know, if we had the time and the energy, uh, uh, you know, we could keep going on forever. Um, one thing that I would like to do is I would like to just throw out there as a little uh, tease for our listeners that we are working on putting together a uh, show in a couple of weeks. And while we don't have all the details worked out just yet, uh, it, we hope to have it involve someone uh, who has uh, really strong ties into the uh, Grateful Dead and Dead and Company community who might be able to uh, uh, share some fun stories and other insights with us uh, that day. Perhaps we uh, spend a little bit of extra time focusing on the dead side of things. But stay tuned to our show, and as we know more details, we will let you know about them. Yes, that's very exciting. We have some very prominent guests coming up exploring all sides of this, including some people perhaps that are not in favor of cannabis legalization, some other people who are going to talk about uh, how the bankruptcy laws come into play for cannabis business owners who end up with large tax bills. Uh, so we got lots of great topics coming up. We never seem to r- run out of things to talk about, but um, that's all for this episode. So, Larry, unless you have anything else. Nope, Jim, I would just say uh, to everyone, uh, in, uh, enjoy the week, and uh, thank you for listening as always, and just keep listening to The Grateful Dead and uh, enjoying marijuana and listening to us. Well, thank you, Larry, and Jim Marty here saying over and out. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humiston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.